You're listening to The Tarot Diagnosis. I'm your host, Shannon. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I also happen to have a love for tarot. Each episode, I invite you to reflect with me as I work to demystify the tarot and the human experience, all while exploring tarot's connection to mental and emotional health. While this podcast may feel therapeutic, it is not meant to take the place of psychotherapy. So grab your cards and join me as I work to create a pathway to better understand ourselves and those around us. I am really looking forward to today's episode. We are going to be doing something different today because I am obviously in a period of experimentation. So we're going to be exploring the world of internal family systems and Carl Jung's process of individuation, all through the lens of tarot, of course. I wasn't originally planning on doing an episode on this topic, but I had been working on the Working with the Swords workshop for the symposium this month, and I found I was heavily influenced by the internal family systems model and Young's process of individuation, and I just had a lot of fun doing the workshop, so I figured why not bring it to the podcast? So (laughs) I decided to do an episode on internal family systems and throw in some some young stuff too. So grab your cards because you'll want to be pulling alongside me throughout the episode once I get into the card pulling portion. Before we start pulling cards though, I want to spend a few minutes giving a very brief overview of what the internal family systems model is how it's applied, and how a tarot can benefit that practice. I also want to briefly overview Carl Jung's process of individuation because I found that the two seem to intersect and complement one another quite well. I'm going to be doing my best to make these overviews as short as possible, so bear with me, but I I do think it's important to hear the background of both both of the theoretical lenses so that you can decide if they would benefit you to implement on your own journey. I also want to share a bit of a disclaimer. So, you know, just like with any theoretical modality or intervention, there are criticisms and internal family systems, which uh, moving forward, I'm just going to refer to as IFS. It's easier. Um, But IFS is not immune to any of those criticisms either. And I just want to say the way that I tend to utilize and view IFS is very loose. I use it as a framework and then work with my clients to create an image within that framework based on their own personal experiences, of course. And the client is always leading and driving the whole session. And I find that I tend to sprinkle IFS theories in throughout my work. So it's it's really helpful. And I think as you start to learn a bit about IFS and how it intersects with Carl Jung's process of individuation, you're going to start making connections within your own life and within yourself. Okay, so now let's talk about what the internal family systems model even is. The core premise of IFS is that our mind or psyche is made up of a community of parts. So when you hear parts work, that's really kind of where it stems from. And each part has their own perspective and purpose within us. Uh, You can kind of think of it as like a Zoom meeting inside your head where 
everyone has a voice, an opinion, and a personal experience, but everyone at the end of the day really wants what's best for you, the Zoom host, (laughs) and they want to protect you. Even if their view or their approaches look different from each other, the end goal is always the same, to protect you, ourselves. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting. So in IFS, there's a concept called the self, capital S. And if you're familiar with Carl Jung's work, you might be starting to see where IFS and the process of individuation begin to intersect. This self is the core of who we are. It's that calm, centered, compassionate part deep within us. The self is similar to the concept of the wise mind and dialectical behavior therapy. <laughs> and, you know, you know, I love a good DBT reference. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, one of these days you all are going to get so tired of me talking about DBT. You know, and I didn't even realize the overlap with the wise mind until just recently, actually. So, you know, it wouldn't be a TTD episode without me mentioning DBT, I guess. But so going back to the concept of the self, at its core, the self is this curious, non-judgmental part that is accepting and knows that they all these parts exist for a reason. And we can think of the self as that wise mind that we are always seeking out to help guide us. You might even want to refer to it as your intuition. Some people like to do that. As I was reflecting on this topic over the last month, because I've been working on this workshop, I kept cycling through the major arcana and wondering which card would be an accurate representation of the self. And speaking of intuition, I kept landing on the high priestess. It's just, it's where I kept going back to. It felt, it just felt so right. And, you know, maybe you all might have your own version of the self, but just for, you know, the purpose of talking about IFS and the self, the high priestess just seemed so fitting. And I was thinking about Carl Jung's idea of the self and how it unifies our conscious and our unconscious And it's this representation of the entirety of our psyche and how Jung's approach of the self really functions as this like internal compass to help us navigate all the complexities of life and trying to navigate all of that with the end goal of feeling some sense of completeness or wholeness. And the energy of the self just seems so strongly symbolized within the archetype of the high priestess because of their access to intuition and both the conscious and the unconscious. So moving back into the world of internal family systems, (laughs) when you implement the IFS model, the goal is to establish a relationship with your core self. So that wise high priestess mind, while exploring and also working to understand all of the different parts that still make up your inner world. And, you know, and then of course the ideal outcome is like by doing that type of work, we end up 
having this deeper sense of self and this deeper sense of self-compassion and empathy and awareness of all of our parts, even the parts that aren't quote unquote good, the parts that maybe we've been taught to or taught to label or feel are bad or negative or shameful. Speaking of parts, according to the IFS model, we have lots of different parts. And today I just want to focus on the the main parts, which would be the self that we've we've talked about so far, but also the exile, the manager and the firefighter. And, you know, just like in any relationship or, you know, if we want to keep using the the Zoom meeting as an example (laughs) or or Zoom meeting, it's important to, to give each person or part time to be heard because by listening to and acknowledging each part, we start to discover and then better understand their intentions and motivations. And I know that the way I'm talking about this is in a real like personified way, as if all of these parts are real people. (laughs) Sometimes it's just easier to personify them, but in reality, they are essentially experiences and memories and feelings and energy inside of us that all get activated at certain points. And that's what we're really going to be diving into. Because, you know, you have to remember, even the parts that seem critical or like we said, bad or anxious, they're really just all trying to protect us in some way. So all of these feelings and experiences and emotions that those have elicited within us or um, really kind of imprinted upon us affect us in a really deep way. And so when we work to understand why these why these experiences and emotions are still within us and why they get activated, then we can start to understand why we outwardly behave the way we do or why we attach or detach or think or feel the way we do in certain circumstances. So where exactly does Carl Jung fall into all of this? I've been kind of weaving him in and out so far of what I've been talking about, but the creator of IFS, Richard Schwartz, acknowledges that IFS was actually built from a very Jungian-inspired foundation, which is really clear once you start diving into the IFS world. And, you know, we really see this IFS and Jungian crossover most prominently when we look at Jung's process of individuation, which involves this integration of various aspects of an individual's psyche, which we could refer to as parts, just like an IFS. And with the integration of these parts, the goal is to feel balanced and authentic and and whole. And at the core of individuation is the concept of the self, capital S again, which just like an IFS represents the totality of an individual's psyche, their internal experience. For Jung, the self acts as an organizer, striving for an integration and really acts as this main motivator behind the process of individuation and integration. So for Jung, the self encompasses both the conscious and the unconscious aspects of the psyche, 
and seeks to integrate and even transcend them, which really gives us high priestess vibes again and is very in alignment with this IFS theory of the self. And it's why I keep landing on the high priestess as the most appropriate archetype for the self, at least when we're viewing it through the lens of IFS and individuation. But beyond the self, Jung identified three other main parts or functions in the individuation process. He identified the persona, the shadow, and the anima or animus. These parts are also similar to the IFS parts of the exile, the manager, and the firefighter. And I wanted to use this episode to explore how the archetypes we see in tarot can help us identify parts within ourselves and how they might show up during different circumstances or experiences or emotions that we have. And I think it's really important to note that I believe that we are constantly developing different parts of ourselves. For example, I believe we have multiple adolescent shadows and exiles and multiple adult shadows and exiles. I don't think that these parts are always static. So, well, now we're about to pull some cards. So before we do that, let's explore the concept of the exile with an IFS, because I want us to pull cards to all of these parts. So within the framework of IFS, the exile is the part of us that carries our emotional pain or any of the unmet needs from our past or our childhood. The exiles tend to be hidden deep within us, suppressed by the managers in order to avoid re-experiencing any pain associated with them. You know, when we, when we work to identify our exiles, it does help us gain a bit of clarity on why we might think or react in the ways that we do in certain situations. It can be really destabilizing when we have an emotional reaction to something and we can't figure out why we are having an emotional reaction in the way that we are. Often that's because there's some part of us, some part of our exile that's being activated that maybe we're not aware of. So grab your cards and let's shuffle. And we're going to pull a card just to represent one of our exiles. So just pull one card. I'm actually using a different deck today. I'm using Pagan Otherworlds. It has been in heavy rotation for me this last month. I've just been super drawn to it. It's actually, I think I might be using it a little bit more than Tarot Vintage right now, which is gasp, unheard of, but... I'm sure I'll get bored in another week or two and switch to something else. (laughs) Okay. Well, we have eight of swords. So, hmm. (laughs) This one's actually really personally appropriate. What's, you know, what's so powerful about tarot is, is the art. We know that art has this inherent ability to elicit deep emotional reactions from us. So, of course, tarot should be no different. And to be honest, I'm totally having one of those experiences right now. And it's it's funny because, you know, doing this podcast and and creating tarot and mental health content, I walk this fine line between 
sharing my personal reactions and interpretations and also sharing my interpretations from a clinical perspective. (laughs) So I'm in this interesting spot right now of having a really raw human (laughs) personal reaction to this Eight of Swords card, but also wanting wanting to and knowing I need to stay on track and view this more objectively. So I don't know, I might go back and forth in between here. You know, and actually, now that I think about it, this experience that I'm having right now about the Eight of Swords isn't unlike the experiences that therapists have in session with our clients. You know, especially when a client shares something that maybe hits a pain point in the therapist or reminds the therapist of their own exile. So yeah, sometimes it can be an awkward place to navigate, but (laughs) all right. So, so pulling this eight of swords to represent an exile, I'm just going to say it immediately brings up a really specific memory of my own childhood where I was shamed and ridiculed by the adults in my life who were supposed to take care of me. You know, and the the image here is, is really jarring because to me, the swords actually mimic people standing around me. In this, in this experience that I had as a child, I was like this person <laughs> with the blindfold on and this eight of swords being laughed at by the people standing around me, almost in this exact position where these swords are. And I, I was made to feel ashamed about part of my identity, a part of my identity that this event ended up teaching me to hide from not just others, but also from myself for many years. So for the next decade and a half, this part of me was certainly in exile. I don't know. I don't know if I would say it's an exile anymore. The part of that exile, if we want to get super meta here, the part of the exile that experienced the laughter and essentially public embarrassment certainly still exists within me and definitely still has that intense fear of public humiliation. I don't think the shame attached to that part of my identity is a part of that exile anymore. I think it's more just the fear fear of being shamed and and ridiculed so publicly. So this exile, I wasn't expecting to get so personal, but this is a good example, I guess. This exile might emerge if I'm feeling insecure about a public speaking engagement or if I'm feeling anxious about meeting a new group of people. So this, this particular exile within my psyche might get activated when I feel like I'm on display. Think about, you know, we don't typically think about the Eight of Swords like this. It's, you know, we always look at it at face value, like, oh, you're stuck. How do you get out? But, you know, we, I mean, for me, I'm having a personal reaction to this card. So it's how I'm viewing it. But, you know, we don't often talk about how this, these swords don't necessarily have to represent our own thoughts. They could represent the thoughts of other people. And so here we are standing trapped because the thoughts and the words of other people have put us there. So, so yeah, for example, this, this exile might get activated and flood me with 
that same emotional and physical pain I felt when I was being laughed at and shamed when I feel like I'm on display. <laughs> you know, this is this is a great example of how discovering different parts of us or different exiles helps us better understand ourselves because personally for many years, I I didn't understand why standing up in front of a group of people or entering into a room late caused me such intense anxiety. You know, some people might say, oh, you just have social anxiety. But I was able to link it back to this exact situation that I'm talking about now. And when I was able to do that, it really clicked because I it was like that aha moment of like, oh, I, I get why I'm being flooded with these intense emotions because my exile is trying to protect me from possibly experiencing more pain and humil- humiliation. So, you know, when I enter into a room late and I feel like everyone turns and looks at me and I'm flooded with that emotion, it's making me want to hide and and not put myself in a position where I could be humiliated or shamed again. So by understanding that, that's when we can work towards reprocessing these emotions that don't belong in these new situations. Because I think what happens with the exile is the exile is really good at attaching old emotions and experiences to new emotions that have nothing to do with each other. To bring in the Jungian aspect here, if we were to meet at the intersection of IFS and Jung's process of individuation, you would see the exile and the shadow sharing the same space because the shadow represents the unconscious, the repressed aspects of our psyche. You know, it holds on to any desires or emotions that we've been taught are wrong or unacceptable or even that feel threatening or bad. So we just inevitably deny and suppress them. And if we were to overlap both the IFS model here and the Jungian theoretical framework here with the example of the Eight of Swords in my my personal experience, we would see that not only is, is the exile part of me capable of re-experiencing the pain of public humiliation, the Jungian shadow part of me then struggled to keep that that part of my identity that that experience taught me was wrong, hidden from others for quite some time. So you can see both the pain and the repression present in both of these components. All right, so now we're kind of naturally moving into the firefighter part because the firefighters show up when the exile is is about to be activated or has been activated because the firefighter's job is to distract, to numb, and even suppress any distressing feelings that the exile might be about to encounter. So the firefighters are the parts of us that get activated in response to uncomfortable situations or memories. And they're, they're the first responders. That's why they're called firefighters. And they can be incredibly impulsive. They don't think about outcomes or consequences. They're quick to engage in any sort of risky or addictive behavior, anything that will distract you in order to provide some form of temporary relief. And the key word there being temporary. 
And of course, the intention here is to protect us. All of the parts want to protect us. And the firefighter does that by diverting our attention away from any sort of painful or uncomfortable emotions or experiences. They're basically just trying to put out fires with whatever they have access to and not thinking about or really even worried about any sort of additional damage they may cause while they're trying to put out the fire. All right, so let's shuffle and pull a card to represent one of our firefighter parts. Hmm. Oh, that's that's funny. Eight of Cups. Okay. Two eights. Fascinating. Eights back to back. So, well, those of you who are knowledgeable about numerology, feel free to, to reach out to me. I'm sure there's something interesting about du- these these dual eights. Yeah, wow. Eight of Cups. Just don't don't Google what Dorian Virtue thinks about it. But all right, so <laughs> Eight of Cups as the firefighter. So as we know, uh, with the firefighter, that part can be really impulsive and do whatever it can to avoid the exile from experiencing pain or discomfort. So in this case, with the firefighter being the Eight of Cups, it feels like it feels like there's an immediate abandonment of what's in front of them, which really makes sense. You know, the Eight of Cups firefighter might be the one who's flaking out last minute and canceling plans or deciding to do something else entirely different and not even letting the people that they made plans with know, just leaving. So you can see how the firefighter is trying to protect the exile from possibly experiencing discomfort but without any regard or concern or even thinking about the possible consequences of this behavior. So because the firefighter continues with this eight of cups behavior, you know, a consequence might be eventually people might think that you actually don't want to be around them. So, you know, we have to be careful with the firefighters and also keep them in check because the firefighters often resort to unhealthy coping mechanisms like like avoidance, which seems to be clear seems to be clear here in the Eight of Cups. And instead of facing what's in front of them or working through whatever difficult emotions are coming up, they're just escaping. This can happen, and I see this happen, especially in my practice a lot with tasks, a lot of task avoidance, job opportunities that that people are avoiding, events, traveling, experiences, relationships, the list goes on. It doesn't have to just be with people that when we're just looking at this through the lens of Eight of Cups as, as avoidance, but it doesn't have to just be people. It could be situations, things, experiences. So again, the firefighter is going to do whatever is necessary to shield the exile from re-experiencing their pain and discomfort. And in this case, a function of the firefighter part is the Eight of Cups, and that's avoidance and escapism. All right, so now we're going to pull for the manager. And managers are the protective parts of us. They they really like to take charge and try to maintain control over our thoughts, our emotions, and behaviors. And 
they often operate from a place of responsibility. They are they are concerned with <laughs> avoiding vulnerability, but they're also really driven to protect us from potential harm, just like the other parts. But managers are really goal-driven. They like to maintain order. They want things to be, they want things to be put together. They can come across controlling because they want to be avoidant of any sort of discomfort or even perfectionistic. But again, just like the other parts, their goal is to keep us safe. And I, I think they they differ from the firefighters most obviously because of the manager's lack of impulsivity and more of this increased focus on this desire to make responsible choices that that keep the exile out of out of pain and discomfort versus kind of just doing whatever comes to mind. There's there's more of um it's more of a calculated way to protect the exile with the manager. You know, and what's interesting is within the Jungian framework of individuation, I really see an overlap between the manager and the persona because the persona is the social mask that we wear or this role that, that we feel like we have to present to the outside world. You know, and it's, it's often... It's often created or born from societal expectations and, and standards. You know, and I think, so when I think of my persona or when I think of my manager, that's when I most identify with the queen of swords because I feel like she's the ultimate protector. <laughs> I feel like her energy will keep me safe without causing harm to myself or others, ideally. So, but we're still going to pull a card and, and see what comes out. So we're going to shuffle and see what comes out to represent the manager. Oh, okay. This one might be tricky for me. <laughs> we got the lovers. Hmm. Okay. We'll see what I can do with this one. <laughs> All right. So the lovers, the lovers archetype represents the integration of polarity and, and the lovers really emphasize this inherent need for, for balance when, when we're faced with opposing forces, which is really everything that we're talking about today. So that this is interesting pulling the lovers, especially as the manager, because you know, like I was saying, the manager part in IFS really strives to maintain stability within within our inner world, our internal system. And this order that the manager is trying to facilitate is usually because there are opposing forces present. And those opposing forces are uh, usually conflicting emotions and thoughts. I think the lover archetype as the manager, also seeks to balance conflicting needs and desires of the different parts with, within our inner world. And I think, I think that's what's interesting about pulling the lover that I might not have thought about had I pulled or talked about the Queen of Swords, for example, because there is this energy of needs and desires inherent within the lover's archetype. And I think this is very similar to Jung's idea of the persona, that aspect of the self that's shaped by societal expectations. 
And, you know, the lovers and the lovers archetype embodies this, this longing for harmony, usually within ourselves. So again, really great card to represent the manager. Actually, I was, was really nervous at first. I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this? But okay, no, this actually makes a lot of sense. So, so there's this underlying drive for, for harmony. And that's very much what the manager strives for. This, this creation of inner peace and inner cohesion. And both of these, the lover and the manager and the lover as the manager really are actively working towards resolving conflicts between internal parts in order to gain any sort of compliance and cooperation. This really makes me think of the the book 78 Degrees of Wisdom, where Rachel Polak describes the archetypes of the lovers as, as this experience where there are, quote, many people who outwardly live socially acceptable lives, yet inwardly fight constant torments of desire, end quote. I think I think that's a really accurate representation of the role of the manager through the lens of the lovers because the energy of the lovers as the manager and really even as the persona is trying to create a facade of cohesion in order to feel really calm and put together and in control even when there's an absolute battle that could be raging internally so by understanding the different parts of ourselves, like the manager, the firefighter, and the exile, or the persona and the shadow, we're really able to recognize the various protective mechanisms operating within us and why they're there and why they're operating the way that they are. It really gives us this opportunity to develop self-compassion and to feel balanced and really ultimately work towards this this goal of healing that we all have, or at least validating and, and comforting any of these inner wounds that may be influencing our behaviors or eliciting these emotions that confuse us. So by building this cooperative relationship with all of these parts, we allow ourselves to get closer to embodying that energy of wholeness and integration that's really present within both the lovers and the high priestess. Thank you so much for listening to The Tarot Diagnosis. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok under the handle at the tarot diagnosis and join us while we pull daily cards and explore tarot and mental health in between podcast episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you have a topic or question that you'd like for us to explore on the podcast, you can contact us directly on our website, www.thetarotdiagnosis.com.